Hello and welcome to the DeathCast. I am your host, author and journalist Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take a look at another true crime case. Before we get into this week's case, as always, I have show notes. If you'd like to follow me on social media, just search for Ian Totten, author, or The Death Cast. You can find me on most social media websites. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon member, just go to tinyurl.com backslash dcpatreon. For as little as $2 a month, you can help support this show. If you are interested in getting any of the official show merchandise you can go to tinyurl.com backslash dcpodmerch that's tinyurl.com backslash dcpodmerch and find a number of different shirts there as well as I believe a coffee mugs and stickers lastly a couple of shout outs to new coffee club members First up, we've got Devlin from Scranton, Sarah from Creola, Ohio, Misty from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and Tara from Pensacola, Florida. All those fine people went to CorpseCreekPublishing.com and clicked on the donate button and became members of the coffee club. So... I salute you with my cup of coffee. All right, now that all of that is out of the way, get yourself something to drink. Find a nice, comfy chair. Kick back, relax. I've got my coffee, but because I'm on the road this week, unfortunately, I don't have cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. January 1997. Police in Poughkeepsie, New York notice a string of missing young women and express concern amongst one another. Since the previous October, three known sex workers, all of them white, petite, and with dark hair, have gone missing. Missing people are nothing new in Poughkeepsie, which at this point in time has just under 30,000 inhabitants. Despite the low number of people living within the city of Poughkeepsie and the nearby town of Poughkeepsie, it has an unusually high crime rate. With a crime index as of 2023 of 16, with 100 being the safest. In fact, within the state of New York, you have a 1 in 319 chance of being the victim of violent crime. However, in Poughkeepsie, as of 2022 data, you have a 1 in 142 chance of being a victim of violent crime. Downtown Poughkeepsie is pretty gang-infested. In fact, the reason for this is there is a burgoing drug trade and wherever you have gangs and you have the drug trade you have prostitutes and unfortunately Poughkeepsie has an abundance of all three 
police were aware of the prostitutes working within their city, but not just in the city of Poughkeepsie and the small town of Poughkeepsie, which is pretty much right next door to the city of Poughkeepsie, but also in the outlying towns. See, Poughkeepsie it lies within the Hudson Valley along the banks of the Hudson River, and there are numerous small towns situated nearby. And these towns, unfortunately, get a lot of runoff of crime from Poughkeepsie. When I say runoff and crime, I'm meaning they have a higher than average crime rate as opposed to other small towns within the state, particularly towns that are further north and west in upstate New York. The towns around Poughkeepsie, they see a lot of property crime, a lot of violent crime, drug crime, as well as arrests for prostitution. As I said, the police were well aware that they had this situation going on within their downtown area, but it was very unusual for multiple women to disappear from this geographic area, especially women who had such similar looks and lifestyles. The first to go missing was a 30-year-old woman by the name of Wendy Myers. This was on October 24th of 1996. Wendy was described as petite with short brown hair and hazel eyes. She was reported as missing by her boyfriend, one set of sources say that she was last seen at the Valley Rest Motel in a town called Highland, while another set of sources state that Wendy's last known whereabouts were Jewett Avenue and Main Street also in the town of Lloyd. Now, the town of Lloyd is just about seven miles from Poughkeepsie. So, pretty quickly, the police in Poughkeepsie learned that they there was this young woman from the general area who was missing. Although there is little evidence to go on, unfortunately, women who are trapped into this lifestyle of drugs and prostitution live very transient lives. Despite the fact that her boyfriend is saying, you know, Wendy has gone missing, this isn't like her, it's more likely than not the police were looking at this as she simply got out of the area because it was getting too hot or she was having a problem with certain Johns. So little came of Wendy's disappearance. On November 11th of 1996, young woman by the name of Gina Barone, whose age varies between 27 to 29, went missing. Some sources state that Gina had gotten into an argument with her boyfriend that evening 
and that her boyfriend had forced her to go out and work the streets. While other sources state that she had gone out to work the streets that night in an effort to get away from her boyfriend, I'm not saying that the guy was a pimp, but reading between the lines, that's really what it seems like. In any event, Gina was, again, described as petite, long brown hair with at least two tattoos, one of which was on her arm that read Pop. Sources differ about when Gina was actually reported missing. Some say that she was reported missing around the time of her disappearance, while others state that it was actually in the first few weeks of December that her mother, Patricia Barone, reported her missing. In any event, the last known sighting of Gina had her in the city center of Poughkeepsie arguing with a man, although unfortunately no description was given of this man at that period of time. Then seemingly the disappearances stopped, which is not unusual, especially if you're dealing with a serial suspect, as we've discussed before, oftentimes between crimes they will go through a cooling off period, and no real headway was made in either case of Wendy or Gina. In January of 1997, the Poughkeepsie Police Department's detective division was taken over by a lieutenant by the name of Bill Segrist, and Segrist saw the missing person report for Gina, but he also saw the missing person's report for Wendy. Because if you'll remember, I stated that when Wendy went missing, they kind of put out a be on the lookout for her in the neighboring cities. And Segrist was well aware of both Wendy and Gina, more likely than not because they were a constant fixture in the downtown area where they worked the streets. And he pretty quickly deduced that something was wrong with this situation, that they shouldn't have two women suddenly go missing from the area, especially two women who had such similar physical makeups and who knew one another and traveled within the same circles. On January 15th, the police department is contacted as another woman has gone missing, this being 47-year-old Kathleen Hurley. Now, Kathleen had last been seen three days prior Kathleen had short brown hair, was white, and had a tattoo on her left bicep that read CJ. She was last seen in downtown Poughkeepsie. With this disappearance, Lieutenant 
Sigrist reaches out to the narcotics unit to try and find out if there is any information on these three women who are missing, as oftentimes the narcotics unit who works the streets and generally has numerous confidential informants has information that is beneficial to other investigations. And from the confidential informants, they learn that a number of the prostitutes within Poughkeepsie are complaining of an individual who is unusually rough with them. And I think that's important to note because, let's face it here, women who fall into prostitution, most of the time they're not dealing with the best of the best when it comes to society. And oftentimes they're dealing with men who see it as their right to misuse and abuse them. And they kind of network among one another to let the others know to be careful with this particular man or that particular man. And let the others know that, you know, what one particular John might be into. That kind of thing. But for them to be talking amongst one another as well as to other people who are on the periphery of this lifestyle that there's one guy who is getting really rough with the girls that is a major red flag and police are immediately alert once they learn of this information and real quick I want to point out that a lot of this information is coming from various newspaper reports but also from an article by Mark Gatto, who did extensive coverage of this case. After learning that there is a John in Poughkeepsie who is mistreating and getting rough and violent with the women, Segrist keeps leaning on the narcotics division to find out any further information that they can on this individual. And pretty quickly they learn that the man's name is Kendall Francois. Francois was a large African-American man, uh, roughly six foot four. Some reports put his weight as ranging from three to four hundred pounds. Francois lived with his parents at 99 Fulton Road in Poughkeepsie, and he worked as a janitor at a local school. After looking in to Francois, the police learn that he had recently been accused of assaulting a local prostitute so the Poughkeepsie police they start feeling that you know we've got our guy here at which point they put Francois under surveillance and it wasn't constant surveillance but they're just trying to keep an eye on him to see if they could catch him doing anything 
that might lead to the solving of these crimes. They even took the unusual step of finding a local prostitute who was familiar with Francois and they convinced this young woman to wear a wiretap informing her that they were trying to get any information that they could on the man. This woman had a number of interactions with Francois during this period of time, although they did not lead to anything. So at this point, the police in Poughkeepsie, they have to turn their attention elsewhere. And you'll see this oftentimes in homicide investigations, the cops, they'll get a good lead on someone and they'll check it out as thoroughly as they possibly can. In this case, they went a little further than they usually do by getting this young woman to agree to wear a wire and to interact with Francois. But they have to leave. They can't put all their eggs in one basket. They have to investigate other leads. One of the leads that the police investigated was they began to check their Jane Doe records. And basically that means they began looking at any unidentified bodies that had recently been found or were found within their prescribed time period to see if any of the bodies fit their missing women. They didn't just do this in Poughkeepsie, they also did this in the surrounding area and at least one report that I read stated they actually went so far as to request unidentified victims records from the city of New York just in attempt to be as thorough as possible. Although, unfortunately, none of these leads panned out either. On March 7th, 1997, police received another missing person report. 31-year-old Catherine Marsh was reported as missing by her mother. When the police took the report, they actually discovered that Catherine had not been seen since November. In fact, she was last seen two days after Gina Barone, which puts it somewhere around the 13th of November. And later it would come out that in the months prior to her disappearance, Catherine had actually begged her mother to let her come home, although her mother did not acquiesce to this demand from her daughter, as Catherine had a pretty long track record of drug abuse and prostitution. And unfortunately, you can go and find pictures of Kathleen on my various social media accounts. It says she's only 31 in the pictures that are available. She looks to be much older than 31. As with the other missing women, she's kind of petite, 
court looking at the pictures though she's a little bit more heavy set than the other women so i take petite in this regard to mean that she's of a small stature she has short light brown hair and most of the pictures show her with what appears to be a fat lip and a black eye but it it's very apparent that the years of walking the streets and using have been rough on her after learning about this fourth disappearance the police in poughkeepsie really redoubled their efforts going so far as to reach out to jurisdictions to see if any of their missing girls were in custody elsewhere possibly under one of their known assumed aliases some reports i have read state that the police in their efforts to track down these women actually brought cadaver dogs into the area to look for them in the areas that the missing women were known to have frequented i've been unable to ascertain whether or not the media in Poughkeepsie knew what the police believed was going on at this point. Eventually, they would get involved with it. But at this point, with four women missing, it doesn't seem as though the media was giving this much print. And that may have been at the request of the police department. Oftentimes you'll see that the media has information and they will hold it back at the request of the police. Not for nefarious reasons, but simply to allow the police to work on the case longer or to help the police from keeping a public panic from breaking out. In any event, after... Catherine Marsh was declared missing and the police were able to find no trace of her other than the fact that she was last seen in Poughkeepsie somewhere around November 13th. The local police department decided to reach out to the FBI for help and we will come back to that in just a moment. Is Bigfoot real? What happened to Amelia Earhart? Who are the lizard people? Are demons really trying to infiltrate our schools? These are the mysteries of life. And this is the Mystery of Life podcast. Meet Joe, the believer, and Johnny, the skeptic, co-hosts of the Mystery of Life podcast. Featured in Pod Bible, the UK's premier podcast magazine, the Mystery of Life podcast offers a unique blend of wit, skepticism, and belief, with a touch of humor, that has quickly made it one of the favorite podcasts here in the crypt. Ghosts, demons, aliens, true crime, conspiracy theories, the paranormal, witches, folklore, urban legends, cryptozoology, missing aircraft, lost treasures, and maybe a goblin one day. If they love it, they'll talk about it. And you'll love it too. The Mystery of Life podcast, 
available directly from the show's website, mysteryoflifepodcast.co.uk, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. The Mystery of Life Podcast. Do you believe? We are back. For the break, we were talking about how the Poughkeepsie Police Department reached out to the FBI for help trying to figure out who could be responsible for the missing women. And unfortunately, the FBI really wasn't able to help in this instance as anybody who's familiar with profiling knows a lot of what goes into building this profile comes from crime scenes, be it where a victim's body was found or an area where a murder has taken place. They can read a lot into these things and go from there in order to try and build their profile. Harkening back to the Green River Killer, if you'll recall, the FBI, although their profile was pretty off in most regards, at least their initial profile. They were able to build one because they had a crime scene while in these Poughkeepsie disappearances, they had no bodies, they had no place where they could say, you know, somebody had been murdered, they had nothing, including any evidence that crimes had taken place beyond the friends and family members of these missing women stating that they wouldn't have just taken off like that. So the FBI's hands were tied as far as helping the police department out, leaving the police to continue trying to track these women down, reaching out to other jurisdictions, not just in the state, but along the East Coast and further inland, to see if any one of these women may have turned up inside of a jail cell somewhere. Unfortunately, that was not the case, and as the months stretched on through the summer of 1997, all of these cases ended up going cold. That changed in November of 1997, when a retired corrections officer came to the Poughkeepsie Police Department asking for help. His wife had recently passed away and he was trying to get in touch with their daughter, Mary Elizabeth Healy Giacone. So he goes to the police with this and the police actually take the unusual step of declaring Mary Healy Giacone as a missing person they did this after looking around through town and discovering that Mary, as with all of the other missing women, had a history of working as a prostitute in and around Poughkeepsie, and she also had a history of drug problems. The frightening thing about this particular disappearance is... They actually discovered that Mary was last seen in February. So a full nine months had passed between when anyone last saw her and the time when she's actually reported missing. 
and unfortunately you do see this quite often in cases of prostitutes being murdered. They have that transient lifestyle, they're disconnected from their roots, from their family. It's very difficult for anybody to keep track on them unless they are constantly in contact with them. After Mary Giacone goes missing, the police really redouble their efforts, and the news media actually gets in on this and starts heavily publicizing these crimes, and that the police fear that there's a serial killer stalking their streets, and they start looking into further similarities between these women trying to discern where it's most likely that they've disappeared from, and they also begin trying new tactics. They had the helicopters out over the city off and on in an attempt to try and find these young women. They were dredging the Hudson River. I've read a few accounts that they actually thought about putting women officers on the streets to pose as decoys in an effort to try and entrap the individual they thought was taking these women, but none of these things bore any fruit. They had various suspects during this period of time, but unfortunately, none of these men fit who it was they thought that they were looking for Many of them were drifters who would come into the area for a day or two only to leave again. And to compound all of this, both the city press and the residents began to criticize the police for not doing enough to catch this individual and for not doing enough to protect the young women who were working in the downtown area. Around January 23rd of 1998, one of the local prostitutes tells another young woman who's working the streets that she has just had a pretty horrific encounter with one of her clients. She states that the man had taken her back to his house and in the course of having sex, he had choked her to unconsciousness with his bare hands. Now, this other girl, knowing what's going on, convinces her friend that she needs to contact the police and let them know that this happened. And eventually, after some persuasion, this young woman does come forward to the police and tell them that, hey, this happened to me. But unfortunately, she's unwilling to sign anything. The police keep pressuring her, and eventually this young woman signs the affidavit on February 26th, stating that she had been working, and this individual had picked her up, brought her home, and then viciously assaulted her. So the police go to arrest this individual, Kendall Francois, who, if you'll remember from earlier in the episode, they'd already spoken to before concerning another 
story that had reached the police through confidential informants that this guy was being rough with prostitutes around town. Francois's case ends up going to trial. Originally, it was a rape case, although he's able to get that knocked down to a third-degree assault, at which point Francois pleads guilty and is given a 15-day sentence, although he ends up serving only seven. Now, you would think that the police, knowing that they have these women vanishing in the area, and now we've got someone who's been brought to us twice, having viciously assaulted young women, you would think that they might try and get a warrant of some type. You know, trying to link him to these missing girls, but other than these two assaults, they really have no physical evidence that they can go to a judge with and say, we need to go and check this guy's house out. So unfortunately, the police's hands are tied. I suppose they probably could have, you know, started trailing him again as they had done the previous winter. But if you'll remember that previous winter when they were trailing him and following him around town, it didn't come to anything and eventually they stopped. At this point, they don't even do that. So on May 25th, Kendall Francois is released from jail. And on June 12th, 1998, a 51-year-old woman by the name of Sandra French went missing. While Sandra Jean French did have a known history of drug use, I couldn't find anything to specifically link her to being a prostitute, although the fact that she disappeared and would eventually be found with the others leads me to believe that she more likely than not had slipped and was attempting to pay for her habit. And this particular crime really tipped the iceberg, as it were, with the police department and forced them to set up a task force in the following month in July known as the Missing Woman's Task Force, whose job was basically they would sit downtown in the quote-unquote red light district and really just try and catch this individual in the act, be it of picking up a prostitute or possibly assaulting them, Again, they didn't know what was happening to the women if they were being killed nearby where they were picked up or if they are being taken elsewhere and then murdered. Interesting thing, though, is at the time, the police did not announce that they had this task force going on, which is really a smart move on their part. When you think back to someone like a Gary Ridgway, where they had a massive task force that eventually made national and international headlines, Ridgway was able to use that information in order to evade the police. By the police in Poughkeepsie not 
putting out there that they've got this task force going on and that they're working the streets that the this killer is stalking, they have a better chance of actually encountering this individual, whether or not they were would encounter him while he was in the commission of his crime of choice is another matter, but by not letting anyone know that they were out there doing this, at the very least, the killer didn't know that he was being stalked in this manner, because they did what they had done before. They set up patrol cars and that type of thing. They had officers out there on the street posing as prostitutes trying to trap this individual. Unfortunately, though, even with this task force set up, the killer was still able to hunt. On August 12th of 1998, 34-year-old Audrey Puglisi went missing. Audrey had three minor arrests in her past, but none for prostitution. However, as with the majority of the other victims, unfortunately, Audrey was and working as a prostitute in Poughkeepsie. She had relocated there roughly six months prior after living most of her life in Westchester County. And Audrey's case is kind of important, as you're going to see when we get to the end of this episode, as it raises certain questions about the truthfulness of the perpetrator. Thirteen days after Audrey went missing, a 25-year-old woman by the name of Katina Newmaster went missing. As with the other victims, Katina was brunette, thin, petite, was last seen working the streets in Poughkeepsie. I'm going to read you a quotation from an article that appeared in the Poughkeepsie Herald shortly after Katina went missing. And this is from an unnamed prostitute who I think sums up perfectly how the city's working girls felt. And I think it's very telling, but I also think it's a very true statement insofar as the majority of the public does view these women. Quote, we're low lives. That's what it comes down to. People don't care that we're missing because they think we don't belong on the streets in the first place. It's not just the police. It's the community. The police were out in force by this point, handing out flyers with pictures of the missing women on them, trying to garner some leads. And eventually, this would lead to a major breakthrough on the case. On the morning of September 1st, 1988, a local prostitute escaped from a home located at 99 Fulton Avenue. Fulton Avenue's pretty close to 
Vassar College, and this particular home, I've read it described as a two-story Victorian that was almost directly across the street from a funeral parlor. So, this woman escapes from the house and makes her way down the street towards two officers sitting in an unmarked police car. Now, so these two officers that are both detectives, Detective Skip Manane and Bob McCready, they were preparing to hand out flyers with pictures of Katina Newmaster on it. Sources vary as to what exactly happened. Some state that they saw this very large man driving a car pull into a gas station. He waved to them. They waved back. Others that the officers pulled into this station without any interactions with this man. A woman by the name of Deborah Lonesdale approached the officer's car and informed them that a woman who was currently walking from the gas station told her that she had just been assaulted. So the detectives, doing their due diligence, they locate this woman and they talk with her and she says that yes, this did in fact happen. They persuade this young woman to come back to the police station with them. Later that afternoon, after speaking with this young woman and learning what exactly had happened, which is that this very large man named Kendall Francois had paid her for sex and taken her home, and then gotten her into the bathroom on the up second floor of his house and then proceeded to attempt to strangle her to death. And she had escaped. After interrogating her for some time, the officers head back to 99 Fulton Street that afternoon to have a discussion with Kendall. Francois agrees with this and goes back to the police station with the officers where they begin interrogating him. And Kendall Francois begins confessing. The things that he begins to confess to at first shock the officers as they can't believe the things that he's telling them and then at the same time they are disgusted by the things he's telling them. Obviously they believe him the next day, they officially charge him with one count of murder for the death of Katina Newmaster. Before we get into what the police discovered inside Kendall's house, I'm going to go over who Kendall Francois was. Kendall Francois was born July 26, 1971. He was born in Poughkeepsie and lived in the house on Fulton Street his entire life, attending Arlington High School. Kendall was a really big guy. He was six foot four by the time he was a senior in high school. Kendall 
graduated high school in 1989 and enlisted in the United States Army the following year. And by 1993, he was working on a liberal arts major, something he would continue to do for the next few years up until his arrest. Francois worked for about two years at a local middle school where he was known by the moniker of Stinky as apparently he smelled fairly bad. Children called him this. And upon being interviewed, numerous teachers noted that while he was a nice enough man, he seemed to have a preoccupation with the female students, and many of these teachers took issue with this as they often caught him touching the girl's hair and telling sexual jokes to them. Although it's anyone's guess as to why these teachers didn't bring this particular issue up to their higher-ups. At the time of his arrest, Kendall was living at 99 Fulton Street with both his mother and father as well as his sister. And that piece of information right there is both extremely interesting, but as you'll see in a few moments, also flabbergasting. A little bit more about Kendall's personality. From everything I've read, he was never known to have had a girlfriend, although female co-workers stated that he was affable enough and a basically a gentle giant. So after his confession and being charged with the murder, the police and EMTs descended on the home en masse where they found... Kendall's mother, Paulette, where they served her with a warrant and informed her that they were going to be searching the house as her son had been arrested for murder and had informed the police that the bodies were inside of the house. The scene that officers encountered upon walking into the home was something straight out of the television show Hoarders. There were piles of clothing and garbage strewn throughout the entire house. The contents of closets were spilling out across the floor. There was old rotted food left out on tables and in sinks with bed sheets having been placed over the windows. And this is actually where Kendall got the nickname of Stinky from. Police would later learn that neighbors on the street knew the Francois house because there was a putrid odor that wafted off of it at all hours of the day and night and didn't just do it during the course of this series of murders, but had been doing so for years. Now, the police are dressed in hazmat suits and everything else, breathing units, to try and get through this stench of this house. And Kendall had told them that 
he would bring these women home and he would have sex with them. And during the course of having sex with them, he would snap, beating them with his fists and then choking them to death, usually in the upstairs bathroom, after which he would bathe them and then bring their bodies upstairs into the attic where he would store them. So on this first day, I believe it was September 2nd of 1998, the police found the first body. And upon discovery of this first body, it was decided, this guy's telling the truth, we need to cordon off this house, preserve the crime scene, which they promptly did, and very quickly the street became a circus as both regular citizens and the media vied for turf out in the street to watch as the police conducted their investigation. So on the first day, they discover the first body. To appease reporters, one of the lead detectives informed them that Francois had informed them that the bodies were inside of this house, which further inflamed the media circus and brought back shades of John Wayne Gacy as anybody who knows the Gacy case knows that he kept new, the bodies of numerous young boys and men in his crawl space. Well, inside of the attic, the police found three bodies, most of the time covered with blankets and garbage. They learned that Francois had allayed the suspicions of his family members by informing them that a family of raccoons had died up in the attic and he was having a difficult time getting to the corpses. How the people in this house could mistake the stench of a small dead animal for that of a rotting human body is beyond me. I'm certain almost everyone out there has smelled a decaying animal corpse. Decaying human body is a hundred times worse than that. That sickly sweet smell that's unmistakable. The police are up in this attic and they're just permeated with the stench of death and whatever else was in that house. And they end up going down into the crawl space slash basement where they learned that Kendall had stored the bodies of other victims. Basically what he would do is, after he would kill these poor women, he would clean them up and then bring them down into the basement, dig a shallow grave, and then cover them with a layer of dirt. Again... How the family didn't know any of this was going on is beyond me, but it sounds like they had enough of their own issues taking place to be living in a house in this condition to begin with, that one of their family members getting rid of bodies throughout the house is no big deal. One of the parents, the mother of Gina Barone, Patricia Barone, was out on Fulton Street as the police began to uncover the bodies 
over numerous days, and she gave this quote to the New York Times, quote, in my head, I'd come to terms with it. I had a feeling she was gone all this time. I always felt that when the good Lord thought I was ready to hear it, I'd hear it. Francois informed the police that he had murdered eight women and put them inside of the house. All of the bodies inside of this house were identified. However, one of the bodies was of a victim that they didn't even know Kendall was responsible for. That of Audrey Puglisi, the 34-year-old, if you'll remember, she was from Westchester County. Kendall had never mentioned this woman to the police. He'd only mentioned the others who were inside of this house, which made police suspect that more likely than not, he had killed innumerable amount of women, and he was just refusing to talk about all of them. Which, as we know from other cases we have covered, is more than possible. It's highly likely. With cases such as Gacy and the Green River Killer, Gary Ridgeway, Ted Bundy, we know that for the most part, they're only willing to give up the victims that the police know about. They're not going to give up those ones that the police haven't discovered or don't know that they're tied to. Almost as though, for them, they're still getting over on the officers because they still have this little bit of secret information about these people that they killed that nobody else knows about. And it's suspected that Francois killed anywhere from 8 to 10 women, as there were other women who went missing during this period of time and slightly before when his killing spree is known to have begun, that have never been found and that have never been definitively linked to him, although authorities do suspect that he had something to do with some of them. On September 4th, 1998, Kendall Francois was indicted for the murder of Katina Newmaster. This was while the bodies were still being discovered inside of the house at 99 Fulton Street. On October 13th of 1998, Kendall was formally charged with all eight counts of murder in the first degree, eight counts of murder in the second degree, and one count of attempted assault, that being the young woman who managed to escape from his home.
Kendall ended up pleading guilty to the crimes and was sentenced to life in prison at, without parole. During his guilty plea and the sentencing phase of his trial in 2000, it came out that Francois had been found to have AIDS as early as 1995. Some have speculated that Francois may have contracted HIV from a prostitute as it was discovered that he was a regular to the prostitutes in Poughkeepsie and that many of the young women whom he murdered he was regulars of these girls. So the thought process is that Francois suspected that one of these girls may have given him HIV, and as a result of this, he was taking out his anger over this on all of them. Francois was sent to Attica State Prison in upstate New York, before being transferred to the Wend Medical Facility in New York. Francois died at the age of 43 on September 11, 2014 from what is said to have been natural causes. The state of New York kind of went out of their way to show that he had not in fact succumbed to HIV. A couple of things came out of this case. One of the most important being that prior to the early 2000s, the general consensus among law enforcement and particularly the FBI was that most serial killers were white males in their early to mid-twenties. With the discovery and conviction of Francois, that idea began to shift to now the general consensus is that the majority of serial killers are African-American males age range between their late teens to early thirties. The reason why I say that is important is because it shows that even with all the scientific breakthroughs and psychological advancements that have been made in the study of serial killers since the phenomena was first acknowledged in the 1970s, law enforcement and the general public as a whole are still learning about them constantly and shifting their perspectives on what makes them tick are nature versus nurture can it be predicted if somebody is going to be one and even the race of the offenders as we saw with the Samuel Little case where they're saying at this point he is the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history. Whether that's true or not, only Gary Ridgway knows. Personal opinion, I think Ridgway probably has killed 
hundreds of individuals, but that's just based on interviews and letters I have read written by him. But it shows that there are still... There's still a lot in this area that needs to be explored, discovered, dissected, and discussed. That is going to do it for the show this week. I sincerely hope you enjoyed it. If you liked the episode, please consider subscribing wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to follow me on social media. And leave a five-star review. Until next time, I would like to thank our sponsor this week, the Mystery of Life podcast. The Death Cast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Stay morbid.